Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. Can I invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2? We're going to continue our series in Acts this morning. It's our third week in this, in this uh, wonderful book. And this morning, we're going to look particularly at verses 22 to 47, although we are going to focus especially on 22 to 41. And um, that's partly because there's so much in the final few verses of this chapter that I really think we ought to come back around to it in a few weeks' time. Just so you're aware as well, if you haven't heard already, we have a special guest speaker next week. We've got Tom Sussex coming back um, to visit, and he's going to preach to us from Acts chapter 3. Uh, and then I think the week after that, Pete's doing Acts 4. So if we do return to Acts 2, it will be in a few weeks' time, um, but certainly something to look forward to next week. So Acts chapter 2, and the title I've given to this morning's message is Authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. Now, some of you here this morning, I know, will be familiar with the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. It was a book written by a Christian pastor called John Bunyan some 350 years ago. He wrote it while he was in prison for having preached the gospel and refusing to stop preaching the gospel. And for the next 200 years, this book was ranked just behind the King James Bible as the most read and loved book in Christian households up and down the land. And in it, John Bunyan tells the tale of a man called Christian who travels from his home, the City of Destruction, all the way to a place called the Celestial City. And the book's really a story of how a person becomes a Christian and then continues as a Christian all the way to heaven. It's a wonderful book, and it's one that's just dripping with biblical truth and rich illustrations of the Christian life. Well, at one point in the story, we find Christian already some way along his journey. He's on a path called The Way, and he got onto that path sometime earlier through a very particular gate, a small wicket gate. And in fact, he's been told that that's the only legitimate way onto the path, is through that gate. And the gate, of course, uh, if you know a bit of the Bible at all, the gate, of course, is Jesus. John Bunyan was no doubt inspired by Jesus' words in John 10, where Jesus called himself the gate for the sheep. And in Matthew 10, where he said to be sure to, be, be sure to enter by the narrow gate. So Jesus, the gate, is the only true way in onto this path. But Christian, as he now journeys along the way, he spies all of a sudden two men tumbling over, to the, over the wall and onto the path beside him. One of them is called formalist and the other is called hypocrisy because Bunyan loves to use names that tell you the character of his characters. They sort of wear their hearts on their name badge. Formalist and hypocrisy explain that for one reason or another, they thought it was a waste of time trying to enter by the proper gate. They wanted to come an easier way, a Christless way and yet still be counted as those who were on the way to heaven. And they're very happy to adopt some of the formalities and outward customs of the Christian life as well. But they just they don't want to go over the top with it all. They don't want to go too far. They want a bit of Christianity, but not all of it. And they don't much care to talk about things like sin and salvation and their need for Christ. They've chosen, they found, they think, an easier way in. Well, Christian is quite concerned for them, and he presses home their predicament, saying... Why didn't you enter by the gate that stands at the beginning of the way? Don't you know that it is written that he who does not come in by the door but climbs up some other way 
is a thief and a robber. But formalists and hypocrisy are quite adamant. They know what they're doing. They say, if we get into the way, what matter is it which way we get in? If we're in, we're in. You came into the way through the narrow gates. We came tumbling over the wall. And since we're both in, who is to say that your chosen path is better than ours? Well, the big difference, Christian explains, is this. He says, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancies. You are condemned as thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you'll be found as true men at the end of the journey. You came in by yourselves without his direction and shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. And to this they had little to say except to tell Christian to mind his own business. The most recent UK census, you may have seen this come out, I think it was last year, or maybe it was 2021, it said that while less than 5% of the population attend a church regularly, 46% still identify as Christian. A friend also was telling me recently about a church they'd been serving in where there were four times as many people in the membership directory as ever attended and turned up on a Sunday. And that's just two examples of, I think, a big and common discrepancy. Both of them, I think, raise a vitally important question. What is real Christianity? What is authentic Christianity? What is it that makes someone a genuine Christian? Is it just down to how you self-identify on the census form? Or is it just down to certain behavior? Is it just about making sure that somewhere your name is on a church membership list? Does it matter by what route someone comes to count themselves a Christian? Can a person, for instance, safely consider themselves to be a Christian if they don't seem to know much or care much about Jesus? Or if their Christianity doesn't seem to make much difference at all to their lives? Acts 2 provides the answer in a clear and dramatic way. Because in Acts 2, the day starts out with only 120 Christians present in the big city of Jerusalem, and it ends with over 3,000 new and authentic Christians added by the end of the day. And all because between the beginning and the end, God's Spirit is poured out and Peter boldly stands up and preaches a sermon. That is one very effective sermon. And its content provides a vital key for showing us what it means to become a genuine Christian. It all, as we're going to see, revolves around Jesus. Forget about fence jumping, forget about tumbling over walls or under hedges. We're going to see that authentic Christianity is nothing else than Christ-centered Christianity. And that the way for men and women and boys and girls to become real, authentic Christians begins with coming to a Christ-centered certainty, which leads in turn to a Christ-centered conversion, which then produces finally the fruit of Christ-centered community. So that's going to be our three headings this morning. Christ-centered certainty, Christ-centered conversion, and Christ-centered community. There really is great help for us here this morning in this passage. Whether, whether you're here this morning and you're wondering, how can you know for sure if you're a Christian? Or you're wondering how you might become a Christian? Or you're wondering how you might help another person, a friend, a family member, to become a Christian themselves? It all begins with this great crowd of people coming to a place of Christ-centered certainty. Now, I'm not going to read the passage uh, from the sort of outright, 
Uh, we're going to work our way through it, and I'll read it as we go along. begins with Christ-centered certainty. Look, first of all, actually, at verse 36. We'll go back to Peter's, the detail of Peter's sermon in a moment. But in verse 36, Peter gives the reason why he says all he says in the sermon. Verse 36 is the conclusion of his sermon. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The clear aim of Peter's sermon is that he might bring his listeners to a place of certainty about Jesus. And it's a certainty in particular about what God has said about Jesus. Many of the people in the crowd that day no doubt had their own opinions and theories about Jesus. Uh, maybe they thought he was a good teacher, a wise rabbi, a healer, a helper, a dissenter, a troublemaker, now a dead man. Maybe they thought, therefore, he's irrelevant. Let's forget about him. But personal theories and opinions about Jesus are clearly not what counts here. Lots of people in our world today also have their own opinions and theories about Jesus, about who he is and what he did, whether or not he's significant now. But the truth is, personal theories and opinions about Jesus are still not what counts today. They certainly do not make a person a Christian. The only thing that really matters, according to Peter, is what God says about Jesus and how we respond to what God has revealed about him. So Peter's effectively saying to this crowd in verse 36, whatever you might have thought about Jesus up to now, and some of you clearly didn't think very highly of him because you crucified him, I'm here to tell you that in spite of your opinions, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. That is what matters, says Peter. That's what everyone needs to reckon with, that God has now exalted Jesus to the highest place and bestowed on him, as it says in Philippians 2, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what really matters. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He has made him already the ultimate ruler and saviour of the world. Well, how can we be sure of this? How can we be certain? How can we know that this truly is who Jesus is? Well, because Peter gives his listeners in this sermon not one, not two, not three, but four watertight reasons to be certain. And, and I just love what a reflection of God's heart this is towards us, his generous heart in wanting to help us believe and be certain. God wants us to be certain. And so he gives us not one, but four reasons to be utterly sure and certain about Jesus. So here's proof number one, Jesus's life. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. At the heart of Jesus' three-year ministry on earth before his death was a message. A message about himself and about the kingdom that he had come to bring. But as he went about proclaiming this good news of the kingdom... His message was authenticated by accompanying miracles as well. Mighty works and wonders and signs is what Peter calls them. Miraculous pictures and proofs 
of the spiritual realities that Jesus had come to offer and bring. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. And he did many other wondrous signs besides. You yourselves know these things, Peter says. And and just remember, imagine a good number of his listeners had probably seen with their very own eyes some of the miracles Jesus had done. Others had no doubt heard from trusted friends and families about what they had seen him do. Well, these miracles, Peter says, were God himself attesting to the identity of his son. God giving proof before your very eyes of who he is and what he had come to do. And we, of course, today still have the evidence of his miracles with us in the carefully recorded eyewitness accounts of the four Gospels. And a little encouragement as well. We really shouldn't underestimate the benefits of encouraging a a non-Christian friend to read through the Gospel accounts for themselves. And maybe we could ask if they would like to read through them with us. Because all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus just leaps forth from the pages in sort of a technicolor glory. His uniquely compelling character and teaching and his mighty and miraculous works, all of them on soul-winning display. God in the pages of the Gospels testifying to the true identity of his Son. And that's the first proof, Peter says, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, both King and Saviour, the many signs and wonders that he performed during his life. Proof number two, Jesus' death. Now, perhaps some in the crowd at this point were thinking, well, that's all very well, Peter, what you say about Jesus' life, but we easily put a stop to him. How could he be both Lord and Christ if we were so easily able to thwart divine plans overpower Jesus and crucify him. Ah, says Peter, but don't you realize that though you crucified and killed him, he was in fact also delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I think uh, most of us, if not all of us, love or maybe this is just me, to see plans for great projects ahead of their completion. I heard recently that they might be doing something to the galleries down in Broadmead, and I was like, oh, that's exciting. The galleries is not that great anymore, so they're going to do something big and better. We get excited, don't we, whether it's plans like that, plans for a house renovation, plans for a holiday. I remember when the plans for Cabot Circus were unveiled some years back now, and it was just incredible to look at what they were proposing to build. Seeing the plans for a big project beforehand, it gives you a, a real sense of anticipation and confidence. And then if you, if you ever get a chance to see the plans afterwards, it reassures you how it matches up, that there was great intentional design and purpose in what's now being built. Um, so imagine if someone looked at Cabot Circus today and started to question if maybe had it really always been intended to be a shopping center? Maybe it had just come together by accident. Perhaps it wasn't actually intended to be a place for shops and shoppers. Maybe when the building work started, it was, they didn't know what they were doing, but it just turned out to be a really nice shopping center. Well, in that case, the copious detailed plans could be brought out to assure us today that it was in fact designed from the very beginning to be a magnificent new shopping center and that that is most certainly what it is today. 
Well, if you think those plans might be reassuring and somewhat interesting, the truth is there is nothing else in the history of the world that has ever been more carefully planned and announced and foretold beforehand in the most incredible detail than God's plan to send and then deliver up his son to death on a cross. Right from the very third chapter of the first book in the Bible through to so many promise-laden chapters like Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, and many more besides, to Jesus himself telling his disciples ahead of time, three times in fact, that the Son of Man must suffer and die and three days later rise again. Jesus was without a shadow of a doubt delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And the proof is all throughout the Old Testament, that first half of the Bible that was written before Jesus came and lived and died. In fact, you find it throughout the New Testament as well because the New Testament authors love to quote what was in the Old Testament and show how now these promises have been fulfilled. Jesus was crucified by sinners for sinners because God had planned by that very means to rescue sinners. That is proof number two, intended to give us certainty about Christ. Proof number three, Jesus' resurrection. And this is actually the one that Peter spends, I think, the most time on because it's the most, I think, visually convincing proof. First of all, he states the basic fact that Jesus was raised. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter turns his listeners' attention to how this too was already foretold by God in the Old Testament long before it happened. This time he gives them a very specific example through the words of Psalm 16. So verse 25. For David says concerning him, this is King David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now this psalm, when you first read it, and, and I think how the people gathered around Peter that day perhaps had always read it, it suggests that David is writing about himself. God's holy one, the king. And it suggests it's talking about his confidence that God would not abandon him to death or let his flesh see corruption. But then what Peter does is he, um, and this is, there's great reassurance in this as well. You look at Peter's sermon here. He's just reasoning with them. Christianity is not an unreasonable thing. No, quite the opposite. It's based on reason and on what God has revealed and what God has done. And there is evidence and there are, there are these proofs. And so Peter points out that David clearly wasn't writing about himself because his body is dead and buried. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Instead, Peter says, David was writing in advance about Jesus. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter and the other 120 now spirit-filled Christians around him, they are all witnesses. And there were, we're told, many more, many hundreds of other witnesses besides them who had seen the empty tomb, I, I presume just a few miles down the road from where they are now. Witnesses who had seen the risen Jesus alive and in his resurrection body before he returned to heaven. The great crowd of people listening to Peter right now, they could go and they could check out the empty tomb for themselves. They could go and find and speak to numerous eyewitnesses who'd seen the risen Christ. Peter's point is this. Since Jesus is the descendant David was talking about, who clearly has conquered death, he must be the promised Christ that David spoke of and looked forward to. He must be both Lord and Christ, for he has risen. And the fourth and final proof Peter gives is the coming of the Spirit. Proof number four, the coming of the Spirit. So Jesus has died and risen, and then Peter turns our eyes even further upwards. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, David had foreseen many centuries before how one day one of his descendants would be exalted to the right hand of God. One who would somehow not only be David's son, but also David's Lord. And the proof, Peter says, that this is clearly Jesus that he was talking about has just been taking place right in front of them. In what they've just seen and heard in the coming of the Holy Spirit. We heard about that last week. The wind, the fire, the miraculous tongues and bold gospel proclamation. The coming of the Spirit is the ultimate sign that Jesus has ascended to the throne and that he's reigning over all. Pentecost could only have taken place like it did once Jesus was exalted on the throne of heaven. And it did take place and the Spirit did come and we can still see him powerfully at work today and therefore again we can be certain about Jesus himself, that he is Lord. So there we have four articles of proof to give us certainty. Any one of them is compelling evidence in itself, but in the kindness of God, he gives us this assurance four times over that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So that all of us, like Theophilus, do you remember Theophilus? We mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. The one to whom Luke is writing. Luke's writing that Theophilus and all his readers might have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. And now here is Peter and God through Peter giving us certainty about the things we have been taught about Jesus. And you see, the doorway, the gateway to becoming a genuine Christian, it always begins with coming to a place of certainty about Jesus. There is no other way to get in. No shortcuts that avoid Christ, that avoid having to reckon first with him. So let me ask you this morning, are you certain about Jesus? 
confident in what God has revealed about him. It's not that you have to know everything about everything or even everything about Christianity. Far from it. You, You don't need to know much about Christianity at all to get started. You just have to be certain about one thing. You just have to be certain about Jesus, about who he is and why he came and why you need him. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not currently certain, are you willing to look more closely at the things God says about him here in his word? Certainty comes from listening to God. Even just these two volumes, Luke and Acts, they're full of compelling evidence intended by God to give us the utmost confidence and make us certain about Jesus. And this, by the way, is why we love the Christianity Explored course. Love that course because it avoids unnecessary distractions and it keeps the focus all the way through on just helping people to see Jesus for themselves in Mark's gospel. It doesn't set out to answer every question a person might have. It simply says, let's start with Jesus and show you, first of all, why you can be certain about him. Then everything else will sort of flow out of that and fall into place from there. But the place to start is with Jesus, which is what Peter has done here. And the effect, as we read on now, was powerful. Even on those who had been murderously opposed to Jesus just a few weeks before, suddenly they are certain about who he is. And their response that day illustrates the second step that must be taken for anyone to truly become a genuine Christian. Christ-centered certainty should lead to a Christ-centered conversion. Christ-centered certainty should lead to a Christ-centered conversion conversion. People often, I think, still talk, don't they, about conversion experiences in their lives. Moments that, for whatever reason, they made a radical decision that brought about a radical change in their life. People talk about being converted to running. I mean, who can understand that? Or converted to vegetarianism. Or converted to real coffee. That makes sense. Some of you have played a part in converting me. Uh, Maybe converted to EastEnders or converted to some kind of religion. But what takes place here in the lives of 3,000 onlookers and passers-by on the day of Pentecost is not just any old conversion experience, not just conversion for the sake of a change and a fresh start. It's not even just some kind of vague, general, religious conversion. Most of the people listening on that day, if not all of them, already happen to be very religious people. Now, what's described here is a very specific Christ-centered conversion. A conversion directly in response to what they've just heard and understood about Jesus. Because as these people listened to Peter reason with them that day, they became convinced for the very first time of who Jesus was and what he had done. And they knew that they could no longer ignore this or turn away from it. They knew they couldn't brush it to one side and forget about all that they'd heard. Maybe this morning, as you've listened to what Peter's had to say, maybe you're feeling the same. Verse 7, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Luke tells us they were cut to the heart. They were deeply affected, moved and grieved by what they'd heard. But why? 
Surely good news, isn't it? Realizing the truth about Jesus. Why are they not just encouraged and excited about this new realization? Why are they also convicted and cut to the heart? Well, it's because in showing them Jesus, Peter has also had to show them something else as well. He's shown them their own guilt before God. He's shown them where they presently stand before God. And they're realizing, they're they're like the rebel fighters who've been fighting on the wrong side all along, warring and rebelling against the good and rightful king, King Jesus. In this case, many of them had a literal hand in crucifying him. So you can imagine how they were feeling as they listened. Twice, Peter had now described him as this Jesus whom you crucified. That's who God has now lifted up and exalted as Lord and King and Saviour over all, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so they're realising what terrible danger they're in. That they're guilty of treason, that they're under a divine death sentence, that they're right now under the rightful judgment of God. And so too were all of us. And still are if we've not yet responded to Jesus. We might not have been there on the day of his crucifixion, but the Bible tells us it was just as much our sin and rebellion against God that nailed the Son of God there to a cross. He died for the sins of the world, 1 John 2. Martin Luther once said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. It was our sins, our sins that held him there. And no wonder then that on realizing this, so many people in this crowd cry out, what shall we do? Because it's not enough to just get clarity on Jesus and to believe the right things. Lots of people think Christianity is just about believing the right things, but it's not. It's what you do with the truth about Jesus that counts and that saves And this great crowd gathered in the streets on the day of Pentecost, they're finally getting that. And so they want to know, what should we do? And so Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, what Peter's really doing here, especially in verse 38, is he's echoing and expanding on that earlier promise from Joel. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We we looked at that, that, that end point of Joel's promise last week. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here are all these people there, standing there now under deep conviction. And Peter now wonderfully spells out how each one of them can personally lay hold of this promised salvation for themselves. How can we get this? Well, Peter's going to show them how they can enter through the narrow gate. First of all, he says, repent, which means to turn right around, to change our minds about Jesus, to change our minds about living in rebellion against God and instead turn back to God, who we now see so clearly revealed in Jesus. This is a Christ-centered turning, a Christ-centered conversion, a turning very specifically to Jesus. 
which, by the way, just to be clear, does not translate in any way to sort your life out, become a better person, and then earn your way back to God through Jesus. That, that is not Christianity at all, as I know many of you know. Now, what's abundantly clear here is that we have a need for forgiveness, that this is for the forgiveness of your sins, complete and undeserved forgiveness from God, forgiveness for our sins that we couldn't possibly earn by making amends, but which is graciously held out to us so freely in Christ today, held out to us entirely, not according to anything in us, but entirely by virtue of his death on the cross in our place. And then Peter says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. This, this is a call to put our faith, our trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for the forgiveness of sins. To put all of our hope in his perfect life, not in our old sinful rebellious life. To trust in his sacrificial death because he died in our place to take the penalty for our sins. And to trust in his resurrection by which God has just given the most ultimate guarantee that he will save everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection guarantees that. And then Peter calls them to be baptized in water as an outward public display of that inward faith and trust. As you've heard, we've got a baptism service this afternoon and it is going to be a joyous celebration and we'd love you to be there. But it's going to be a joyous celebration, not because David is going to get saved this afternoon. He's not going to go down into the water and come up a newly saved man. No, it's going to be joyous because he's going to publicly declare through his baptism that he's already been saved by Christ through David's faith in him. Baptism doesn't save anyone, but it's for those who have already become a genuine Christian. And it's a powerful picture of a Christian's salvation and of the way that Jesus calls every Christian to publicly declare their faith in him. Now notice as well, please do come to the baptism while we're going to celebrate. It's going to be good. Notice as well here the full scope of what God promises to all who turn to Jesus and repent and believe. Look at the promise. Not only in the blink of an eye, Will all your sins be forever forgiven? But he says, you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right from the very first moment a person repents and believes in Christ, God himself promises to come by his Spirit and dwell within that person, enabling them to enjoy his empowering presence, enabling them right from the start to enjoy a truly personal relationship with God. And lest anyone should think, oh, this promise can't possibly be for me. Peter says, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you've become confident about Jesus this morning and you're willing to repent and believe this promise is for you, God's word assures it. And then verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There was no queuing. There was no taking a ticket and waiting their turn. The clear and compelling message about Jesus was preached and wherever, across that great crowd, wherever someone saw with certainty who he was, 
They turned where they were in repentance and faith to trust in what he'd done. They were saved and then they got baptised. And they were added in that single day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. Which raises one final and succinct question this morning. Added to what? What were these 3,000 new Christians added to? What we find is that when Christ-centered certainty leads to a Christ-centered conversion, it ultimately results in the fruit of a Christ-centered community. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now there is, as I said earlier, so much to explore in these verses and we will return here, I think, in a few weeks' time. But here's one thing that I think is most important to highlight this morning. That is that every one of these 3,000 new believers, they devoted themselves to joining this Christ-centered community. They devoted themselves together to the apostles' teaching, to worship, to prayer and mutual care. They devoted themselves to doing life together as a church. It's one of the first and most evident fruits of their faith. All 3,000 of them did it here, as did the many tens of thousands who go, went on to get saved throughout the book of Acts. Peter, in fact, here simply doesn't have a category for people who became Christians that day, but who didn't get added to the church and become a part of that Christ-centered community. It wouldn't have made sense to him that God would save people and they wouldn't become a part of his people. And authentic Christians, as we see here, they, they want to devote themselves to being a part of the church, to learning and loving together, to worshipping together and witnessing together. It's not that becoming part of a church is what saves you. Absolutely not. Not one bit. But it is that all those who are saved are placed by God into his family. And then they're called to demonstrate that reality by heartfelt participation in God's family and in a local church family. But hopefully that's not a big surprise for any of us this morning, or you wouldn't, I guess, be here this morning. Christianity is personal, but it's not individualistic. It is corporate. Jesus is, after all, saving a people for himself. And it's also, we see here, an astonishing gift of grace to be a part of what is described here in Acts 2. In his classic book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. It is a testimony to the miracle that God has worked in the life of every genuine Christian believer. He hasn't simply called us to tick a box on a census or just observe a few outward Christian rituals. He hasn't called us to be like those two interlopers and imposters on the path, formalist and hypocrisy, who ultimately ended up on a different path altogether, going to their destruction. 
No, God has called us by his great mercy to be like Christian. He calls us to himself through his son, through that narrow and wondrous gate that is Jesus. And he gives promises and assurances like the one in John 10, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let us all, before we go home this morning, ensure that we have entered by the one true gate that is Jesus repenting and trusting in him who laid down his life to make us his own. Receiving for ourselves not only the forgiveness of all of our sins, but also the equally wondrous gift of the promised Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't leave us in uncertainty this morning about your Son. Lord, that you have made it abundantly clear in a multitude of ways that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. King over all and Saviour for all who believe. Oh Lord, we pray, please help every one of us listening this morning to re respond with renewed confidence in Jesus. For those who came here this morning not believing, may they go home with certainty in their hearts and we pray give them the faith they need to enter through the gate to repent and believe on Jesus and be saved. And for those of us, Lord, this morning who came in as genuine Christians, but with niggling doubts at work in our hearts, please send us out with a fresh and happy assurance that Jesus is truly Lord and that he is an all-sufficient saviour for us in spite of all of our sins, that he is an ever-present help throughout our lives through the indwelling spirit. And finally, we pray, help us to together treasure the joy of being part of a Christ-centred community your church, and may our life and our witness together point many more people to seek new life in your Son. We pray in his precious and glorious name. Amen.